I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 64 for July 2017. I'm Duncan, and 1964 is the year of the height of the cinematic Peter Sellers. He did both Dr. Strangelove and the finest Pink Panther film ever, A Shot in the Dark, in 64. Wonderful. So, he did, um, so that's about four great performances he did in, in two movies. Yeah, that's tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> that's tremendous. Uh, 1964 was also the year of Oni Baba. Uh, possibly my favourite Japanese horror film. It's this beautiful monochrome masterpiece about these two women eking out a living uh, during the Samurai War. Uh, it's really wonderful, and I, I kind of every time I look at it, I think this is a film that could be remade or see it almost anywhere in mm. some respects, mm-hmm. and should be remade. It's amazing to me it hasn't been. Yeah. So who was it directed by? Because because uh, back in the Japan, you often just think of Japanese that era Kurosawa. Yeah. No, directed by Kanito Shindo. All right. Yeah. Uh, who. Lived to 100, died in 2012. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, Simon, what have you been watching? Oh, look, this month was the month of Lang. As my podcast buddy here lent me Fritz Lang's exquisite World War II thriller, Ministry of Fear, which coincidentally was also the name of the evil wrestling faction I briefly managed back in the 90s. Um, <laughs> not, a, not a lot of people know that, actually. Yeah, it's yeah. one of those things I don't talk about often. Yeah, it's um, also the name of your um, uh, new metal band, wasn't it? Ministry of Fear. Yeah, yeah well, that's a, I love the name. What can I say? Another friend flicked me their copy of The Big Heat, the Fritz Lang-directed film noir from 1953. And that was my favourite film of the month, I've got to right, say. Yep. Um, Glenn Ford is Banyan, an uncorruptible cop who takes on a crime syndicate that runs the city. And this feels like one of my first exposures to Ford, or at least where I really recognise him, you know? Mm. If I knew him as anything beforehand, it was as the wise, kind-hearted Pa Kent, mm. you know, in right. um, the original Christopher Reeve version of Superman. Here he's a good guy, of course, but there's something really vicious and vengeful about him, even before he has cause to seek revenge, you know? Yeah. Uh, there are scenes where he confronts the mighty presence of Lee Marvin, who's larger, younger than Ford, and with this huge, ugly, handsome face like granite. And yet, I don't think for a moment I doubted that Ford could take him. Yeah. Um, just because of his edgy, twitchy delivery, you know, that kind of heat in his eyes. Um, it's like some of the best barely contained violence you're going to see on screen, particularly yeah. from the 50s, you know? Yeah. He's, he's always on edge, eh? And he always looks like a dangerous, dangerous man. Yeah, he looks like he's going to explode at any point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this and this really is a hard-boiled, violent film, and that's one of the things I loved about it. It's as ruthless as its hero, who wins at any cost, and that cost kind of turns out to be the lives of a bunch of women he throws in the way of the gangsters, whether it's intentional or not, you know. Yeah. But they're strong women as well, often choosing to put themselves in danger, danger as Banyan's supportive, outspoken wife does. And I loved her, by the way. I loved her character, uh, played by Jocelyn Brando, who's Marlon Brando's sister. Mm-hmm. Or as Gloria Graham's gangster mole does, unforgettably getting a pot of hot coffee in the face for her troubles before turning the tables on the mob in the end. Um, I love her moxie, you know? Yeah. Particularly when she sees of the burns covering one side of her face. I guess the scar isn't so bad. I can always go through life sideways. <laughs> uh, what a great line. It's a really thrilling noir and, and, and kind of this uneasy celebration of masculine value, values which turn out to be really toxic. It's, and it's a really rich and rewarding watch. Um, yeah, I loved it. Oh, I love this film. Uh, it's a it's a favorite of mine. Uh, I w- 
probably like many listeners and probably like some of themselves, I went through a real period of watching a lot of film noir. Yep. Um, particularly when I was around 18, 19. Sure. Um, and yet somehow I missed this one. Yeah, this was a, this was a big one for me back in those days um, of university watching uh, Big Heat was always there. And it was always the, the striking image of um, Gloria Graham with her um, bandages. face. Yeah. Yeah. And that was always, I was like, whoa, what's this film? And then Lee Marvin, he's amazing. And yep. he's brilliant. Gloria Graham's really interesting. She did two films I really love, two noir, or Big Heat and uh, In a Lonely Place, yep. the um, Humphrey Bogart film, which she stars in, which I really like, and um, and, and kind of slightly underrated or little known. Um, but yeah, Big Heat's fantastic. Excellent film. And, um, and quite influential in that period. Yeah, no, this is tough as hell. Yeah. yeah. And, and what about yourself? What have you been watching? Look, I know I'm late to the party, but I wanted to talk about Split. Of course. Yeah. M. Night Shyamalan's latest psychological thriller. By latest, I mean last year. Uh, yeah. <laughs> look, it was an astounding performance from James McAvoy, which kind of highlights the prejudice and award season attitudes towards like the chosen genre of actors. Yeah, yeah. Because personally, I don't believe a performance of this conviction, ability, and power can be ignored, but somehow it has been. Yeah. It's not just a gimmick either, as the characters, and by extension, us as an audience, can be happy and hopeful when a sympathetic personality appears and then plunged into this, into despair or fear when another one takes over. Uh, the witch's Anya Taylor-Joy continues her impressive run of form and the role, while solidly uh, written, is elevated by her presence. And I've got to give credit to Shyamalan for his control over the script. It's lean and it's efficient. With the nature of the plot, meaning he is hampered with exposition dumps, like real heavy ones, yeah. he manages to make them quite intriguing, though. Yeah. Of course, one of the first things to register is the film's problematic exploitation of mental illness. Um, but this is a kind of a separate issue for whether it is a good piece of storytelling, which has shades of Hitchcock, while the treatment of multiple personality disorder has shades of De Palma about it. Um, <laughs> um, it is the tension and the revelation of the final act that for some may be difficult to swallow, but for me, just propels it into another realm, uh, particularly when the implications of the final scene suggest it will marry up with my favourite previous M. Night Shyamalan film. Yeah. And um, I just thought that um, it was really genuine edge-of-the-seat stuff. Brilliant from the get-go. I saw the trailer for this, and the other thing I'll say about the trailer is I liked how it basically gave nothing away. Right. The trailer was essentially the first five minutes of the film. Yeah. And that's what I wanted in a trailer. Yeah, yeah. And um but McAvoy was just amazing. Oh, I totally owns this film. It's, uh, yeah. it's amazing. It's such a great performance. Yeah. I enjoyed the hell out of this film. Yeah. yeah. So did I. Uh, and the other thing, you know, uh, we were talking last month about something like the Avengers you know, nineteen ninety eight Avengers, you know, having all this kind of money and maybe it shouldn't be made for, you know, however much money it was made for, forty yeah. million dollars or whatever. Yeah. This was made for nine million and it made two hundred and seventy million dollars. Yeah. Right. That's not a bad return. Yeah. <laughs> well this was a Blumhouse film, wasn't it? Um, yeah. and, and so was his previous film, The Visit. That yeah. was a Blumhouse film. They're both really low budget. Yeah. And that's been really good for him. Yeah, you I know, think to so return too. to these low budgets, to to work with a producer who knows how to get the most out of a budget and sort yeah. of, you know, uh, Blumhouse is a, a really interesting guy. I mean, you, you know, a really interesting production company, the way they're able to like, marshal the resources and find niches for um, films. Yeah. And it's been a really great collaboration for him. So yeah. I hope it continues. Yeah. Can I kiss you? So you want to? I mean, I don't know much about kissing, though. Yeah. One, two, three. You might be pregnant now. 
And so, Simon, what's the news? All right. Well, legendary actress Olivia de Havilland turned 101 on the 1st of July. It's fantastic. 101. Yeah, and what a great time to celebrate this Academy Award-winning actress's tremendous career. She just received what seems like a long-overdue damehood, I guess mm. that's what you call it, uh, becoming the oldest woman to ever receive the honour. And rather than settling back into enjoying her retirement that began 29 years ago, she celebrated by calling in the lawyers and suing the hell out of Ryan Murphy in the hit TV series Feud. Oh, really? Yeah. You see, de Havilland is the only star still alive who's represented in the TV series. And yet Ryan Murphy never approached her to get her side of the story before writing the show, which I can understand. Uh, director Robert Aldridge, Betty Davis and Joan Crawford are all long dead, so that they hardly get a right of reply. But Olivia is a still active centurion, and she doesn't seem overly happy about how she's being represented. Mm. Sure, a month or so ago, I reported that de Havilland seemed pretty disinterested in the whole show. Uh, but I guess he's maybe caught an episode or two and <laughs> kind of changed her tune, signaling out how the series puts words in her mouth she never said, and how it apparently paints her as a gossip and someone of ill-mannered behaviour. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, which is a great claim. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 101 and you're suing. I don't know what for. I don't know what you want at that point. But Yeah, um, that's just great. Just, uh, just... Just filling that role that um, yeah. that is portrayed in Feud, which is like, well, no one's going to take advantage of me. I'm just going to yeah, she is. Down the I, I think very much that person. Yeah, yeah not going to give a give an inch at all. Yeah, and uh, and and I guess in the series, she's the other thing is she says a lot of horrible things about her sister, right? Who she fought with, Joan Fontaine. Yeah, yeah, and it goes to pains to highlight like the the feud between Fontaine and De Havilland is not as bad as the feud between Crawford and Davis. Yeah. Uh, and there's the Davis's line, your Joan isn't as bad as mine, um, <laughs> you know, which is fantastic. Yeah, so I can possibly understand, maybe for her family, she's going out swinging. Look, the Coen brothers are back. Um, their latest is called Buster Scruggs, a Western anthology that may be a TV series or a feature film. Right. Not too sure. No one's certain at present, as the anthology is six different stories set in the Wild West. Uh, what is known is that the ubiquitous James Franco has been cast fresh from being the luckiest character in Alien Covenant uh, through being burnt alive in the opening minutes of the film. That's probably the best bait for anyone. Uh, the film, Buster Scruggs, could end up as Michael Winterbottom's The Trip installments have, which is a tight feature film released while a shaggier, deeper TV series has simultaneously been made. Right. I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But I, I think six stories... Sounds like a lot to get into a feature film. I don't yeah, know yeah, do that. I think so. But yeah, um, long feature film. Yeah, I, I just had these um, flashes of uh, was it Winchester seventy three? You know, like with the following the gun through. Yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic. So. Oh man, I love that film. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. That isn't. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. Back in February, we had our spoiler alert Oscars special. We dug deep on how the Academy operates and how awards are decided, and exactly who the hell this Academy is anyway. Uh, one of the things we touched on is the historical conservatism of the Academy, in part because of the membership and the slow pace at which those members are replaced. Well, this month that all changed quite a bit, with close to 800 new members being added, added to a group that numbers 8,000 members. Uh, that seems like a significant change. And there was a, certainly an injection of women and people of colour. And in a list that long, it seems hopeless to go into any depth. So I'll just mention names that leapt out to me when I read through the list. Names like Barry Jenkins, the director of the Oscar-winning Moonlight, mm -hmm. Jordan Peele, presidential hopeful Dwayne Johnson, Donnie Yen. Yeah, Donnie I don't Yen. know why that stood out, and I love <laughs> that. Uh, superheroes Chris Hemsworth, Lou Ferrigno. Nice. Yeah, and Chris Evans, as well as long overdue invites to Takeshi Mike, mm -hmm. Wicket the Ewok himself, Vigo Mortensen, and promising young ingenue Betty White. <laughs> Well, hopefully Betty White can get a break, get on, <laughs> get on our TV screens, Betty. 
Yeah, that's right. Sitcoms or something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, totally. No, that's um. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I I'm amazed she wasn't in sooner. I mean, yeah. yeah, to be honest. Um, but yeah, some interesting names there. Yeah, I'm surprised that a couple of them have uh, Barry Jenkins would have by default, right? But if you, by winning oh. by winning Moonlight, you would have. Don't you? I thought the Academy was made up of Academy Award winners. I think you right. He didn't win director though, did he? Uh, no, but he won for film. For and film, I think, yeah. I think he yeah. was involved in that. I think he would have been. Yeah, if he was one of the producers, he yeah. should automatically get in. Yeah. Um, I can't remember which Academy Award Lou Ferrigno won uh, off the top of my head. Well, it should have been for Incredible Hulk. It should, for the that. series. Yeah, the series, the TV yeah. series. Yeah. The TV series. Oh, he, he had a cameo in the, fil- the film, too. One of the films, too. He did, he? Yeah. yeah. He turned up as a security guard. Yeah. Him and Stan Lee. Him and Stan Lee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is great. That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, look, Shia LaBeouf watch. And the beef will appear in the new tennis film McEnroe versus Borg, which focuses on the legendary Wimbledon battle between the two tennis greats. In between centre court appearances, Le Beef will have to squeeze in some actual law court appearances. Um, Le Beef fought the law and the law won when he became belligerent after failing to bum a cigarette from a police officer. He swore at the cop, threatened to shoot the police officer, uh, possibly got a bit racist, refused to calm down and then ran away. Uh, none of this is good. Yeah, eventually he was captured and will be once more in court. The third time in 10 years for an alcohol-related infringement. Labeef does possess a self-awareness, though, um, even if he's using it to say how how much like a tennis legend he is. He described traits that he and McEnroe shared, including narcissism. Uh, McEnroe, for his part, is sceptical, saying that there's no way that the actors could, could recreate what he and Borg did on court. Excellent. Um, yeah, he's like, well, if they focus off the off off the court, then it might be okay. Really? Yeah, he said. Uh, but if they put it on, it's just going to look like, uh, you know, they'll have, they'll have tennis people running around, and then they'll suddenly cut to a close up of the actor, and it will look rubbish. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, now, what was that film? Um, I remember seeing a tennis film a couple of years ago where they clearly CGI'd the tennis ball shots. Do you remember this? Oh right. Yeah. Um, it was uh, with Paul Bettany. I can't. Oh remember yeah, yeah. The title of it. Wimbledon. It's actually called Wimbledon. Yeah. yeah, and they would CGI the, the ball, so the guys would just run around and hit it in the air, and then they'd put the ball in. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't brilliant. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's something about the, the physics of the way a tennis ball moves, which they didn't get quite right. Right. You, you, if you know what I mean. I know what you mean. But it was the way they tried. And I wonder if they'll do something like this with this, you know? Yeah, probably will. I just yeah. imagine it'll be just like close-ups of feet running back and forth and like rackets flying and then like oh, close-up of Shia Last cut to hell, eh? Yeah, Shia yeah. head whizzing through frame with his like fuzzy yeah. McEnroe afro going on. Yeah. Um, no, I think you're right. I think that's what will happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. But LaBeef, never far away from... Uh, oh, he continually <laughs> entertains us. Yeah, yeah. It's just like, just when you hear that Charlie Sheen's given up um, given up drugs and alcohol, he's gone vegan or something apparently. Yeah. Well, you've always got LaBeef. Yeah, always got... We've, <laughs> we've always got LaBeef. We'll always have LaBeef. I want that on a t-shirt. <laughs> And one of my favourite news stories of the last month, a company called Red Granite Pictures is in the crosshairs of the Department of Justice, eager to claw back ill-gotten gains funneled from the Malaysian government, apparently, through shady shell companies via dodgy bank accounts, and ironically enough, into the budgets of, amongst other films, The Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) I mean, so while there's nothing funny about corrupt officials funneling money from the needy in Malaysia, there is something funny amusing about it ending up funding a film about a scam artist ripping people off. Yeah. So I guess I hope the DOJ get a result here and some of that sweet Wolf of Wall Street money uh, Moolah gets back to where it belongs. Yeah. Though Red Granite Films also made Dumb and Dumber too. So, you know, good <laughs> luck getting anything out of that, eh? Yeah. Mm. Well, maybe um, 
maybe once it's all done and dusted, like Scorsese can make a movie about it or something, you know, so. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. About the whole scam. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just crazy that a a film about a scam should be based on a scam, kind of. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, mobsters, you know, funding Goodfellas or something. Yeah, 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 it's exactly like that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And finally for me, Tarantino is doing a film on the Manson murders, which seems A, redundant, and B, annoying. If the talented filmmaker only has two more films left before he retires. Uh, there's no other news on this beside the fact that apparently he's already finished the script, which doesn't surprise me. He could probably finish the script in a weekend. And I'm sure he'll be able to cast the film with his usual eye for talent. Um, and I've got to admit, the idea of Tarantino writing paranoid rants for Charlie Manson uh, is both intriguing and frightening. It's so redundant because this has been covered multiple times with both Jeremy Davies mumbling his way through the murderous story, uh, Steve Railsback's legendarily eerie performance in the TV movie Helter Skelter, which I remember as a kid watching and just, whoa, you know, when I was like, you know, 16 and I had, yep. had the White Album on vinyl listening to it going, oh, yeah, like, yeah I can see what Charlie's on about. Like, there's, there's messages in here. Oh, there's not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there was even a movie produced from the point of view of a member of the Manson family. So what is he left to say or represent on screen about the story? I don't quite get what Tarantino's hoping to do. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, uh, if if you, if you if you told me Rob Zombie was making this film, I'd go, oh yeah, okay. Oh, totally. <laughs> but that, that that's where we're at now is like the penultimate film of like one of the, you know, kind of most iconic directors of the last twenty thirty years. This is his film. I don't know. Yeah. I just. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know either. You know, I haven't really engaged with this because I sort of read it and thought, oh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a bit like you. I don't I don't know if it's the film I want to see him make. I went out looking for you. You made better time getting away than they make in the Olympics. I thought maybe you and Banyan played footsie while my back was turned. You ought to trade Turney in. Get yourself a more reliable stool pigeon. Maybe I got myself a better stoolie. How was the Gaiety Club? My arm bit! My arm! I suggest we call it the night. I suggest you shut your mouth. Where'd you go with Banyan? Nowhere. Nowhere! Oh, you pig. You lying pig. And now we're on to the spoiler alert movie challenge. Yeah. This month, one of our regular listeners, a true friend of the show, Polar Crump, issued us a challenge to watch and review a film. Something we've done from time to time previously. And the film we challenged us to watch was... Kung Pao. Enter the Fist. Uh, starring Steve Oderkirk, Fei Lang, Leo Lee and Jennifer Tang. And written and directed by Steve Oderkirk. Oderkirk is the chosen one. Uh, martial arts expert who is seeking to avenge the murder of his parents when he was a child. As well as being great at Kung Fu, The Chosen One has a tongue with its own face on it, called Tangy. Because it's that sort of film, I guess. And he's accompanied by a woman named Ling and a single-breasted Kung Fu master named Wo. Also, the French and the aliens become involved. Yeah. Or the French aliens, I'm not sure. Credit to Boulder, because um, this is close to impossible to review as I've seen uh, <laughs> on Spoiler Alert. But there's no real plot to follow, right? No. Um, other than a hero looking to defeat a villain in order to avenge his parents' death, as Simon just said. There's no craft with the humour in that it doesn't escalate in a satisfying way. And whatever was amusing for me took place in the first five minutes of the film. The infant baby kicking the lead villain's ass in the opening scene, leaping through a window to escape a burning building and rolling down the hill was absurdly amusing. It reminded me of Peter Jackson's brain dead with the zombie baby's day out at the playground. 
Um, yeah. And the absurdity like this is kind of a Monty Python school of excessive repetition that very, very, very occasionally works. Uh, the crash zooming overload at the beginning uh, being a good example as well. Yeah. Um, and look, because getting cheap laughs isn't the issue. Doing it artlessly and without much invention is the issue for me. Yeah. And this film doesn't take any care with humour. It doesn't build jokes up for payoffs. It just kind of throws a randomness and hopes some of it sticks. Yeah, totally. Look, I'm just going to step back a bit and talk a little bit about this film for those people who, who don't know what they're going to get. I, I, I'm, and then I'm going to come into the bit where I agree with you completely. <laughs> Look, firstly, just a note about how this film was made, uh, if you've not heard of it. It's based on footage from at least one 70s Hong Kong action film. All the characters are redubbed, mostly by Steve Odekirk himself. Uh, and other characters, again, mostly Steve, are digitally inserted into the action. So think of it as a less good dead men don't wear plaid, maybe. Uh, but some of the effects were actually pretty well done. There are moments where I actually had to pause and look at how the integration was done. And over the end credits, there's a couple of shots that show you how some of it was done. And some, some of it was quite clever. On the other hand, there's a baby that looks like a fat, poorly rendered CGI golem. So it's not all great, you know? Yeah. All the dialogue of the digitally added characters was just made up gobbledygook, which was redubbed later so that the entire film could have that look of being, you know, badly dubbed. And um, Odekirk's an interesting guy himself. Surprisingly, perhaps, he's Oscar-nominated producer <laughs> uh, in the same year that Kung Pao was released, in fact, for Jimmy Neutron Boy Genius, an animated film he also wrote. And he's written a heap of successful comedies, including The Nutty Professor, Bruce Almighty, and God Help Us All, Patch Adams. <laughs> he's also made a heap of children's television, which, you know, I guess helps explain the goofy humour of Kung Pao, you know? Mm. That sort of throw at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, um, and look, I made a lot of what notes while watching this film. Most of you are they're about what I found funny, but there's a lot I didn't find funny as well. It's really scattershot. Yeah, and at 82 minutes, it feels way too long. Yeah, you know, a lot of this will depend on your mileage and whether or not you're watching it with friends and perhaps stimulants. <laughs> yeah, maybe some beers. Yeah, a few beers, maybe. The idea that Steve Odekirk sat down with his kung fu film time and time again, and these were the best lines he could come up with, is surprising. Because it feels like a marathon of comedian ad-libbing lines. If you ever watched Whose Line Is It Anyway, the TV yep. show, um, they'd wheel out a TV and tell the comedians to talk over an old film. Yeah. Remember that? And, and remember how they might say like one or two funny lines in 90 sure. seconds? This is one or two lines and funny lines in like 90 minutes. Right. And he's gone to all this trouble of you know, basically inserting himself into this film. And when, like you say, when you see the end of it and you see all the blue screen stuff and everything that they do, you're like, oh, that's actually pretty impressive. Yeah. He's gone to that yeah, much totally. effort. But so many of the kind of dubbed dialogue lines, there's just nothing funny about them. It's just kind of like, it, it's, it's, it is as if someone's just, you're just listening to someone making fun of it. Who can oh, do yeah, voices. Yeah, there's some Radio Shack line in there, which I don't even know what that's about. Mm. I, I don't know why that's supposed to be funny. It's certainly, this mm. feels ra like you say kind of random. Mm. You know, too, the one thing I thought after watching this is, this has to be a passion project. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no way you write and direct and star in and do all the voices and, mm. you know, in a film like this, unless this is something you're passionate about. Yeah. It's amazing that anyone could be passionate about making this film to me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, look, I'm just going to talk a little bit about what, what I felt did work for me, because, and it's going to feel a bit random, I guess. I like the idea of a guy who was trained to do kung fu wrong for, some, for people's amusement. Yeah. You know, I quite like that character. <laughs> yeah. And it's, for some reason, the fact that he had squeaky footsteps never got old for me. And I think it was a case of a joke that might not be great, 
but push through to become funny solely because they never let go of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So the first time you hear a squeaky shoes, it's a bit silly. But by the end of the film, when he never stops being squeaky. Mm. I was kind of giggling a little bit about that. Um, I also laughed a little bit when you made nunchucks out of gophers, probably because he asked the gophers' permission first, which right. I thought was quite sweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was much less entertained by a martial arts cow that sprays the chosen one with its own milk. Mm. Uh, it's probably in part because the CGI is pretty crummy, but also because it's a Matrix parody, and those feel really old hat. Yeah. You know, I don't need another Matrix parody. Uh, and it's also a moment that's pretty well ruined by every trailer for this film I've ever seen, you right, know? Yeah. Like, if I've seen a trailer for this film back in the day or a clip from this film, it had the cow doing Matrix moves, you mm. know? Um, and, I, and I kind of winced a bit when Can't Touch This played as well. Yeah. Ooh. Look, Kung Pao is the kind of film that has, like, 97% positive Google user reviews and 11% Rotten Tomatoes reviews. <laughs> <laughs> a film that has the most scathing criticism from professionals, you know, kind of... You know, whether Ebert's disgusted by it or the AV Club even ask, is this even a movie? Um, <laughs> I read that review. <laughs> and yet a real groundswell of love from a select audience. Oh, man, totally. And that audience loves it. I mean, truly loves it. There aren't many of these kind of like, hey, it's a bit of a guilty pleasure. I get a little bit of a laugh kind of positive reviews. These are, this is the best comedy movie ever and has war to war laughs kind of positive reviews. You know, this is like one of their favorite films of all time, yep. which I find. Mind-bending. <laughs> I, I find it incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah I, do, I do too. <laughs> you know, I just found it a little bit, at, in parts, a bit of a chore, to be honest. Yep. Like, I just, like you said, the jokes don't have a build, so I found as I was watching it, the story didn't seem to go anywhere, the jokes didn't have a build. Intermittently, I would find something that made me laugh, like, um, you know, when someone someone has basically been murdered and someone says, where does it hurt? And the reply is, pretty much around the big bloody spot. <laughs> you know, I laughed. And there were laughs that seemed to be, or attempts at laughs that seemed to be incredibly, uh, like throwaway gags, incredibly difficult to pull off. Like the scene where they fall down a waterfall and you can briefly see the Titanic submerged in the bottom of a lake at the bottom. Mm. And I don't know how many people even noticed that. It's yeah. so throwaway. Yeah. And even if you did get the gag, what, why is it a gag? <laughs> yeah. Why is that funny that the Titanic should be at the bottom of this lake in this yeah. one moment? Um, and yet it must have been a hell of a setup. What a waste. Yeah, that's right. The other thing with Kung Pao, it doesn't seem to have the insight to really tear at the conventions that exist in the genre. I keep going back to the opening scene, which is seriously, for me, the best scene in the film. Oh, I love the fact that the baby rolls down the hill and then the woman picks up and says, oh, how cute, and then rolls, keeps it rolling. Yeah, that's right. And, and I keep going back to it, and I wondered, not, not actually going back and watching it, but I keep going back in my mind <laughs> and wondering why this worked the best. What I figured is that this is one of the few sequences of the film that is not from the 1976 film. Right. Right? So this is all shot specifically for Kung Pao. There's not anything that I could tell that was actually taken from another film. Right. And uh, it is actually staged with the language of cinema to generate laughs. The infant is shot in shadow, kicking and backflipping, which aids the hiding of the doll being used to double as the child. Yeah. Um, but it also works for humour. It's constructed with laughs in mind. Yeah. The other scene that mainly works, as I mentioned before, is the crash zooming insanity of when, just, just after this, when the adult version of the chosen one has his first fight against like a platoon of mercenaries yeah and that's another one that is shot specifically for the film but it also plays with genre conventions in an obvious but a humorous way and then again there are two scenes that i didn't care for which were shot for the film which is like the mono-breasted angel of wisdom you spoke yep. about 
and the cow fight. So, but like a 50% ratio is much funnier than say like maybe like a 2% ratio for the rest of the overdub yeah. film. I just felt that, that, that kind of, if they had gone out and um, shot more stuff, which he clearly top loaded it with, <clears throat> everything that's shot specifically for the film is at the top. Yeah, and I like what you're saying about genre conventions, and perhaps why I found the guy was deliberately trained wrong for their amusement funny is because you're often it is bad kung fu and even good kung fu films. Like yeah. I've talked about how in Enter the Dragon, there's a lot of guys in the background who look terrible. <laughs> yeah. And I like the fact that the film kind of addresses that. So yeah. when it does address, as you say, the genre itself, it's actually funnier for it. Yeah, know? that's right. Yeah, rather than just kind of making, um, you know, infantile fart gags and kind of, you know and, and like kind of sexual innuendos yeah, and stuff yeah. like and and like i say like cheap comedy isn't you know in this podcast already we've spoken about dumb and dumber and this guy did you know ace ventura when nature calls yeah you know what i mean so yeah. he's worked with jim carrey before I, you know jim carrey back in the you know 90s was great yeah. but it's just yeah there's something not quite um it's just just the lack of care and construction that I would have thought, like you say, in a passion project. Yeah, this would have had a lot more of that. Um, yeah, and I also liked the. Uh, I tell you, the shots that I was quite impressed with technically were the ones where um, Steve Odekirk is integrated into the old film, but sometimes yeah. to the side or the background. Yeah, and he's kind of fuzzily, you know what I mean? It's kind of fuzzily integrated into it. I really liked those. I thought they were technically yeah. really well done. Yeah, there are moments that are technically well done, actually. Yeah. And it's quite impressive when you watch the end credits and go, oh, that's really interesting how they put things in. Yeah. You know. <laughs> look, look, look at us praising the hell out of this film. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, the other thing I did notice is it's quite violent, too. People have holes punched through their bodies in ways that reminded me of a film I enjoyed much more. The story of Ricky. Oh, yeah. And it, and it kind of made me actually think, ah, like, oh, man, I want to watch the story of Ricky now. In fact, I wish I was watching the story <laughs> of Ricky right now. Uh, it's violence is much less, uh, it's far more comedic, though, you know, yeah. You know, in the sense that it's, you're not going to be affected by the violence when, of this film in the way that the story of Ricky sometimes is a little bit sick-making. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But, um, it, you know, the story of Ricky is basically what I'm saying. Go and watch that, people. Yeah. Um, it's pretty good. Oh, I, I quite like that um, scene as well, yeah, where he kind of punched a hole straight through the straight guy. Straight through a guy, like, yeah. And the voiceover guy's going like, oh, I'm not a doctor, but how does it seem medically <laughs> that possible? That doesn't even seem possible. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I like that scene as well. See, that, the, the beginning of it, I was like, okay, this is going to be a bit, you know, goofy, but it's got some funny lines and stuff. Yeah. And that just dissipates so quickly. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that scene too, just drawing attention to the ridiculousness of what they were doing. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, you know, I didn't love this. I laughed on occasion, but not enough. And I think I would have preferred it run a lot less than 80 minutes. Maybe under an hour is possibly the ideal runtime of this film for a film like Kung Pao, you know? Mm -hmm. So I can't really say it's badong, exactly. <laughs> but it's certainly not guite either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's nice. It feels like what it is, really, a skit stretched out to 80 minutes. Like, this is a... You know, five minute skip would be probably really, really good. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. if you took five minutes of this film and put it together, it'd probably be like genuinely funny to the point where you're like, oh, they should make a film of this. No, they shouldn't. Look, for a significantly better version of this genre of comedy dubbing, I recommend watching the 1993 Australian film Hercules Returns. Love that film. It uses a dramatic framing device of an underdog story and also has the characters love the film that they're making fun of. They're trying to save a cinema and they get this print of an Italian Hercules film, and they don't want the evening to be a disaster to not be able to show it, so they just start making things up frantically on the spot and even doing their own Foley work 
which is fantastic. But Hercules Returns was also based on a long-running, successful improv theatre group. They've been doing it for years by the time it got to the screen. And this kind of honed professionalism seems to be sadly lacking in Kung Pao. There is definitely comedy to be mined from badly dubbed Kung Fu films and the tropes and style of the genre. It's just that it hasn't been mined here. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And now we're on to our favourite part of the show, your favourite part of the show, the tree of woe, uh, where we nail up a cinematic offender to the tree of woe. And Simon, who or what or what film has irritated you? Well, look, some months I need to scour the news for fresh victims for the tree. <laughs> uh, like a miner panning endlessly for gold. And then there's months like this one, where I wake up one morning only to find a victim for the tree of woe practically scaling the tree themselves, hammering himself up and slathering his flesh <laughs> in buzzard bait. And that sacrifice to the tree this month is a man who's been sniffing the edges of the gnarled and twisted roots of the tree for quite a few months now, if not years. A man whose name seems to be mentioned almost every month, Sir Ridley Scott. Scott's tired need to keep returning to an ever-empty alien well has definitely frustrated me. The mess that was Alien Prometheus led to a more focused, in many ways more disappointing Alien Covenant, which then led to Scott's claim that he could crank out another six. Uh, which in my head I imagine he said shortly before waving the reporter away so he could take a swan dive, Scrooge McDuck style, into his bank vault full of gold coins, <laughs> all minted with tiny xenomorph heads on them. <laughs> but more worrying... And something I never in my wildest imaginations considered is the thought that all of these lifeless alien films might just be an elaborate origin story for one Alan Ripley. Because that's what Scott hinted at in a recent interview where he speculated that Ripley's going to be somebody's daughter, obviously, because you're coming in from the back end, right? Well, sure, I guess she is someone's daughter. But for God's sake, man, do not make that part of the six films you'd be cranking out. I've got the disappointment of a Han Solo origin to get through. Please don't have the Ripley origin story waiting at the back end for me. And I guess since all of this is still rumour stage, I should let Ridley Scott off with a warning. But frankly, he's done enough to desecrate his own creation to go up in that tree already. And if it stops him from making a Ridley origin story, well then I'm happy for him to become Buzzard Chow. Well, unsurprisingly, this is my tree of woe as well. <laughs> so you can understand how... <laughs> And as you say, all of the points that you say are completely valid. And also the fact that, as you so well put it, he's been sniffing around the tree for a yeah. long time because he has. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I suspected this might happen, but I was like, it's too strong to go ahead. Oh, it is totally the worst news of the month, easily. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it does seem ridiculous to do that to the director of one of my favorite films of all time. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I know. Um, it's, it's like nailing up. You know, the Coen brothers or something. Yeah. You know, it's just like, how has how it come to this? How's our relationship come to, come to this, Ridley? It's just not on. But, you know, he's also responsible for Alien Covenant, which is disappointing, but not woe-worthy. And, but, however, the latest statement from Scott, which, as Simon just said, is that Ripley's parents will be working their way into the narrative quicker than you can say Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru. Um, <laughs> a child, Ripley, does not belong in the Alien series like some repressed memory newt. Um, she hasn't had contact with the aliens before. She doesn't know what they are. This must not happen. Between this and naked couples getting killed in showers, Scott has lost his grip on what is in the best interest of the alien films. He's close to getting charged with being George Lucas behind the wheel of a franchise. He needs to step away, walk in a straight line, touch his nose, and prove to us all <laughs> he's capable of driving the series in the right direction. The best place to do that is being hoisted up on the tree of woe like Dallas in the Alien Special Edition, begging Ripley to kill him. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I, I guess I shouldn't be surprised that we both found the same thing oh, annoying this month. It's, um, I, yeah, it just made my... I 
don't know why I'd never considered that this would be a possibility in the timeline that he would do something like this. And then when I read it, I was like, oh, good. It's like you say, there's no reason for her to be involved in this, her character or her mother or whatever they do, because her first run-in with the alien happens in Alien. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's where it begins. That's right. Uh, Yeah. Uh, (laughs) We've said everything we need to say, but that was, was the last straw. Oh, I was just like, you, you You cannot be doing this. You cannot be putting Ripley or her family or whatever. You know, this, yeah. they, they have nothing to do. You can't put them into a colony and send them off to him. No. This is a really and, bad And thing. yet, at this stage, I'm pretty certain it will happen. But uh, Yeah, and it will. But my only thing is, we're both alien fans. We're, we know alien mythology. We'll, yeah. you know, surely everyone is as outraged as we are. Surely there aren't alien fans who are... Anyone is sitting there going, this is a good idea. No, I wouldn't think so. But I still think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I I, if you were, if I was a betting man right down, I, now, I'd bet one of those <laughs> shiny gold xenomorph coins, <laughs> but I'm sure he has, on it happening. I really would. All right. Spoiler alert. That was uh, podcast number 64. That Whoa. was a good rant. I enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> I want to thank Polar for that excellent suggestion of Kung Pao. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was, that, was, that was a fun one to talk about and do. It was. It was a nice escape for us because it's not sure. something that I would have ever sat down and watched. No, me neither. And we really like getting movie challenges from everyone who listens or yeah. we run into. So seriously, you know, just challenge us. Yeah. We, we no, love it here. That's right. And particularly, like you say, this is a film we wouldn't have just sat down and chose on our no. own to talk about. So that was that was, that was great fun for us. So thanks again. Yeah. Um. So, hey, Duncan, what was your favorite film of the month? I'm, I'm not even going to talk about mine because it was so clearly the big heat. And I've talked enough about that. Yeah, well, look, I, like I say, I, I really enjoyed Split, um, which I only just saw a couple of days ago. But my favourite film of the month was Okja. Um, we spoke about Bong Joon-ho's Khan's entry in the last couple of podcasts. But I finally saw the Netflix movie that stars Tilda Swinton in dual roles, a quietly principled Paul Dano, and an insanely, insanely cartoonish Jake Gyllenhaal. It's just like Steve Irwin on meth. It's just wonderful, nuts. Um, but the real star is the film's lead child actor, Han Seo Hun. She infuses the role of Mija with grace and determination. And the film's message is one dear to my heart, but more than waving an agenda, which it clearly does, it is a heart-rending, funny, and sometimes edge-of-your-seat ride. Uh, but just a slight warning, while it may appear like a kid's film, it has a plethora of bad language and some confronting trauma. Um, but Okja is a charming story of friendship told with a long overdue fresh perspective. Okay, just bump this way up my list now. So yeah. Yeah, thanks for that. Yeah, and um, Bong Joon Ho's, he's really good. I mean, he he did The Host. Yeah, love The and Host. And he also did um, Memories of a Murder, which I spoke about, Yeah, um, which I only just recently watched a few months back. And uh, yeah, he's great. Uh, he also did Snowpiercer. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> um, which is obviously where he got to know Tilda Swinton. Um, she... Uh, produced this along with Brad Pitt. Wow. Yeah, and a bunch of others, but yeah. those are the two names that kind of leapt out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really enjoyable film, and um, uh, I think, and, and entertaining. Oh, cool. So, yeah, check Great it out. Great recommendation. Yeah. Okay, and so thanks to everyone for listening, and the song we're going out to, we, we spoke about Tarantino possibly doing a Charles Manson film. Yep. Uh, and so the song we decided to go out to, what better than... Charles Manson's song himself, uh, <laughs> he was kind of a failed musician. He, he knew Dennis Wilson and those guys from the Beach Boys. He went and recorded a few songs, and one of them was um, Take a Look at Your Game Girl. Very famously uh, in the early 90s, Guns N' Roses recorded it, 
and put it as a hidden track on the Spaghetti Incident, uh, the last song, the last album they would do for about like 20 years. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, they often copped a lot of stick over it because people were saying, look, you, you're having to pay for Manson's publishing rights. Yeah. You're basically giving him money, you know, other than just, you know, the fact that you're promoting him. Yeah. Um, and you're kind of buying into his uh, kind of iconography and his mystique. Yeah. Uh, and of course, you know, Guns N' Roses is, uh, you know, never really kind of took a step backwards from a lot of those challenges and they, yeah. they enjoyed that dangerous association. Yeah, I uh, never knew the story. It's great to hear. Yeah, it's really interesting. And um, yeah, it's kind of kind of funny, I guess, from the late, kind of late 60s, early 70s, yeah. uh, kind of surf beach tune almost, you know. Here comes this horrible uh, incarnation of evil. Yeah. So uh, that's the song we're going out to. Um, so thanks to everyone for listening. We'll check you all next month. And um Get in touch with movie challenges. We loved hearing them. Yeah, we, we had a great time doing this. So, there. Yeah, cheers. There's a time for living. Time keeps on flying. Think you're loving, baby. And all you're doing is crying. Can you feel all those feelings real? Look at your Frustration and down Can you ever live without the game? Sad, sad game Mad game Just to say your love's not enough If and you can't be true Oh, you can't tell those lies, baby, but you're only fooling you. Can you feel all those feelings real? Look at your game, girl. Go on, look at your game, girl. Gentlemen, from this day forward, you will all refer to me by the name Betty. <laughs>